Thank you for listening to this week's message from North Shore Christian Church. For more information about North Shore, please visit northshorechristian.org. Hey, good morning, North Shore. Well, as Pat said, Scott wants us to um, take some time to think, talk, fellowship, pray about what's going on in Israel, the Israel-Hamas war, and what we should think as Bible-believing Christians, what we ought to be saying, um, perhaps, in conversations that we're having and how we should counsel each other about this really important issue. It's kind of ironic that it is so important. The world's a very big place, and Israel is extremely small. It's only about the size of New Jersey, if you can believe that. It's very small. At its most narrow point from the Mediterranean coast, it's, of course, uh, it's on that um, eastern uh, rim of the Mediterranean, between Europe and Africa, the narrowest point from the Mediterranean to the West Bank, it's only about nine miles. It's a very small place, uh, but it's had huge significance. Our main text is gonna be in Ephesians 2. Raise your hand if you need a Bible. We've got our ushers. And if you need a Bible, we'll eventually get to Ephesians 2. Let them know, they're coming down the aisles. And you can just uh, you, you can put a bookmark there uh, if you need to. And we'll look at a few other passages, but that'll be our key passage. And I, I hope that we uh, think about that passage this week and our home groups and other fellowship. Uh, it's a really important passage and I think it speaks directly to this issue. All right? We'll get there in a minute, but I just want to talk a little bit about the historical, political context as I understand it. As I said, Israel's a very small place in terms of landmass, maybe even in terms of uh, worldwide, let's say, political relevance. I guess I wouldn't say that. I guess it's not small. It is quite significant in a political sense, but it's certainly very religiously significant. It plays center stage for Jews, Christians, and Muslims. And so it's a very important place. And our Lord was born there. He preached there. He was executed by Romans there, and God raised him from the dead there. And so it's a very important area of the world um, in, in the, the biblical understanding of things. So let's take a moment to just very briefly look at a concise timeline of uh, the history of Israel and Palestine. It's very concise, and I hope it's not oversimplified. There's just way too much to say. And there's going to be more on the screen that I'm going to have time to talk about. I know you have a page of blank notes. Don't feel any pressure to frantically scribble down notes. I'm going to go a little bit too fast for that. If you just follow along and get the gist of it, that'll be better. So Where does Israel come from? Well, biblically, Israel is founded around 1300 BC when Joshua leads the children of Israel out of Egypt into uh, the the land of Canaan. The Canaanites live there. Various uh, Canaanite tribes live there. And so Israel is founded under Joshua about 1300 BC. Now, that's not just a statement of Christian theological commitment. That is a historical fact. The archaeological evidence is clear. People worshiping the God of the Bible, Yahweh, who would later be called Jews, have inhabited that land from the second millennium BC. Okay, really no controversy about that. So Joshua leads them in. Um, The high point in the history of Israel, of course, is with the very famous King David. King David is a high point. Second Samuel 7, if you're interested, read Second Samuel 7 and what God has to say to King David. This is really the high water mark of the history of Israel. And unfortunately, from 2 Samuel 7 to the end of the Old Testament, it's sort of just downhill. With David's son, Solomon, um, the political prestige of Israel grows. The very famous King Solomon built the temple of Yahweh there in Jerusalem. It's still a very important site. The temple in Jerusalem, it's not the temple that Solomon built. That temple would be destroyed by the Babylonians but a second temple was built on the exact same spot and the foundations of that second temple are still there and it's a very controversial place. Jews and Muslims fight over um, authority in that space, but it's about the first, uh, about 1000 BC, you get David and Solomon. In the middle of the second, or sorry, the eighth century BC, the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and then Old Testament history comes to 
its conclusion in the 6th century BC with the Babylonian conquest of the southern kingdom. And that's when Jerusalem is taken. The spirit of God leaves the temple, the Bible tells us. And since God protects Jerusalem, not the walls, when God leaves, the Babylonians sack um, Judea. Well, that leads to a time of Babylonian captivity and we get the book of Esther, we get the book of Daniel and various other things. Uh, still in biblical history during that time, they're in, they're in Babylonian captivity. And then of course the Persians come along at the end of the Old Testament and they liberate the Jews and the Old Testament closes with Jews returning from Persia to rebuild the temple, rebuild the city of Jerusalem and reestablish Judea. And so when they return, this is where we get the terminology Jews from. Uh, they were Judeans who returned from, from, uh, from Persia. And so it's still under Persian rule, but this is the end of the Old Testament. And so between the Old and the New Testament, we get a series of Persian and Greek rulers. This is the intertestamental period. Uh, there's some Jewish kingdoms in there as well. So um, that's more or less uh, the Old Testament history. Getting into the New Testament period, when the New Testament opens, we notice that Judea is now a Roman province. So before the New Testament opens, about 63 BC, the Romans conquered Judea. And about a century and a half later, the Romans would destroy Jerusalem and the temple in the middle of the time of the preaching of the apostles. 70 AD, the apostles are around. Most of them are still around. Some of them have already been martyred. Uh, but, uh, well, perhaps not most of them. Uh, Peter, Peter and Paul uh, are likely gone, but, but um, around 70 AD, Jerusalem is destroyed. The temple is destroyed. It's still Judea. The Jews still live there. In the second century AD, there is a rebellion called the Bar Kokhba Rebellion in which a guy by the name of Simon Bar Kokhba led a Jewish revolt against the Romans and the Romans had finally had enough with the Judeans, with the Jews, and they utterly decimated Judea. Uh, they scattered the Jews uh, from that point. And in fact, they went so far as to try to de-Judaize the place altogether. They renamed Judea, that province, no longer the kingdom of the Jews. They renamed it Syria, Palestina. That's where we get the word Palestine from. They used um, this, this uh, Latin word, Palestina, which is to convey um, the Philistines, the historical Old Testament enemies of Israel, the Philistines, they renamed it after them. So you might think of this as like the revenge of Goliath, right? Uh, that, that the place is renamed Palestine by the Romans. Well, there's a continuing Jewish presence there in Palestine, but we have a massive diaspora where many Jews end up, of course, in Europe and, um, and, and some in Ethiopia and Africa and other places. And it's a very dangerous place for them anymore after the Bar Kokhba rebellion, but it's definitely de-Judaized, although there's always a Jewish presence. There's never a time in which there's not a Jewish presence uh, in that area of the world. And so it's the historical homeland of the Jewish people. It's a Roman uh, province until the 7th century AD. We don't think of uh, it as being Roman until the 7th century, but it definitely is a Roman province. It's under Roman control until the 7th century. The Eastern Roman Empire, located not in Rome, but at Constantinople, um, governs that area until the 7th century, and it's actually Arab Muslims, a brand new religion in the 7th century. Islam is a new religion, 700 years after Jesus. Arabs from um, the Arabian Peninsula begin fighting the Persians up north, and, uh, and, and just to their north uh, west, they're fighting the Romans and they take that area and it becomes uh, Islamic territory. It's, it's actually Jerusalem is an Islamic city longer than it's a Jewish city, if you can believe that. For centuries, it's an Islamic city and it's considered a holy place for Muslims because of Muhammad's teaching about um, Jerusalem. I'll say a little bit more about Islam in a, in a bit, but uh, very long story short, uh, Muhammad is going to make the claim that the Old and New Testaments are in fact Islamic texts. Now, no, most people can't just go to a library and check out a Bible and confirm these things, but he says from Abraham to Jesus, they were all Muslims, and I am the final and culminating pro uh, prophet of uh, all of Olive's uh, re revelation. And if you go back and look at these things, you will see that it's all Islamic. 
right? And so that's, that's the claim that they're going to make. And so Jerusalem is an important Islamic city in their view. It's not a Jewish city that was conquered by Muslims. From their perspective, it's always been Islamic and it's always been a place for the worship of Allah, although that's been corrupted at times, they're going to say. But um, that begins the Islamic period in the seventh century. I'm sure you're aware in the 11th to 13th century, there's a series of crusades and the crusades come from Latin speaking Christians in the West coming into the Greek-speaking area of the Christian world to help liberate the Greek-speaking Christians from the Islamic threat. And so there's a number of crusades there. And so um, Jerusalem and the so-called Holy Land at this point kind of goes back and forth between Christian and um, Islamic powers for a while. But eventually, 1291, the very famous and important um, um, Mamluk Sultanate takes control of Palestine. Palestine is not an independent country. It, It never is an independent country. It's always uh, a province or a name for an area within a larger empire. So um, at this point, it's, it's part of the Mamluk Sultanate. And then, and then in the 16th century, it, it falls under the authority of the Ottoman Empire, which is also an Islamic uh, empire at that time. And so that's the 16th century. It's going to uh, um, be under the authority of the Ottomans until the First World War. The Ottoman Empire doesn't fall until the First World War. And so that brings us into um, uh, around the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century, we enter into a time called Mandatory Palestine. It becomes a a British-administered area. Um, The Ottoman Empire participated in the First World War. They ended up on the losing side. And so the British from Egypt were able to push the Ottomans out. And the British made certain promises to both the Jewish and Muslim Arab populations of Palestine. Certain promises about uh, um, um, what the government will look like, who will live where. And so there are perhaps even somewhat contradictory promises that are made, but the uh, the British have some administrative authority there at the time. We get the rise of the Zionist movement, and Zionism is um, uh, a a movement in which Jews um, claim the right to return to their ancestral homeland of Israel. And so Jews had always been there, but again, they had been scattered and, and um, you know, many Jews that we know today are living in Europe and North America, um, particularly in, out of Russia and, and uh, certain other places because of anti-Semitism, because of a sort of racist hatred against Jews, many Jews were eager to return to Israel and have their own authority. And that was going to be very important, as you know, in the 20th century with the rise of Nazism and the Holocaust, this is going to be vitally important. And so Zionism is only going to become more critical in the Jewish world. And so various returns, they call them Aliyah to, uh, to Jerusalem, or to Israel, I should say, in response to anti-Semitism happened in the beginning of the 20th century. Um, Well, what happens is Jews develop uh, agriculture and they build uh, uh, infrastructure. And now this this area of the world, Palestine, is largely depopulated. It's not as if there's a massive population there in the late 19th century. There's not much infrastructure there. It's largely desert. And so as Jews return, they begin to build up this infrastructure. That also attracts a lot of Arab immigration. So you do get the population uh, starkly um, increasing. But uh, in in the 19th century, the, the majority of people living in Jerusalem, just a bare majority, were in fact Jews. And there were Uh, There were Muslims and some Christians as well. But now the population begins to grow. You see where it says 1917. That should be its own bullet point just down below. But the Balfour Declaration, uh, Britain doesn't have the legal authority to do this yet, but they promise a Jewish state to, uh, to Jews. Um, And around that time, around 1920, Arab Muslims begin persecuting Jews. And it's very dangerous uh, time for them. And so the British find themselves in this place in which they sort of have to balance the demands of both Jews and Arab Muslims and the, and, and the requests for, if we help you, if we cooperate with you British, uh, who's, who's going to have authority here when you finally leave? And so... It's, they're sort of going back and forth between them. And so um, at various times, they, they restrict the ability of Jews to actually buy land because the Arab Muslims won't, uh, don't want that. And so to keep the peace, they, they do that at times. Um, they develop in 1937 a partition plan where some of the land will be Israel and some of the land will be it's not yet quite called Palestine. Everybody who lives there, including Jews, are called Palestinians, uh, but an Arab state and a Jewish state, and they um, pr- 
propose a, a partition plan. They try to restrict Jewish immigration, but the Zionist movement sort of powers through that and Jews continue to return to, um, to Palestine. Very importantly, in 1941, the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, he's the um, head Islamic leader in Jerusalem, a guy by the name of, you see his name there, Mohammed Amin al-Husseini, he actually met with Adolf Hitler to plan the extermination of the Jews should the Germans win the Second World War. And it, it was pretty close. Uh, German armies were in Egypt. And so um, if they should win and take over Palestine, what will, what will we do? Uh, the, the Germans were racists, the Nazis were racists, and they saw the Arabs as subhuman, but as something of partners, and um, the Arab world has uh, also a sort of racist attitude against non-Muslims, you might say. Um, so they didn't, but they saw each other still, even though they looked down their noses at one another, they saw each other as sort of allies in both wanting to exterminate the Jews. Well, that's pretty shocking stuff. Um, so that's the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem in, um, in 1941. Well, in 1947, the United Nations uh, finally um, ratified a partition plan. And uh, Jews accepted the plan because Jews now coming out of the Holocaust, and you have to understand this, they're coming out of the Holocaust, this massive extermination attempt on the part of the Nazis to destroy the Jewish people in the most inhumane ways. So you, we, we know about the Holocaust. Um, they were willing to accept any land that was given where they could have their own autonomy, their own authority, and they could defend themselves in this world that had become extremely uh, hostile. So they accept it. Uh, Arab Muslims rejected it. Absolutely not. There will be no Jewish state. That's their position. And so in 1948, finally, the British administration leaves, and immediately Israel declares its independence. So British administration comes to an end. And um, there's a couple flashpoints. There's a very important event that happened. Um, uh, Arabs had Jerusalem blockaded. There were some Jews trapped inside Jerusalem, and it's, it seemed you know, very, very bad. There was a, um, a, a Zionist militia tried to break the blockade, and there was, um, um, there was a battle at um, Deir Yassin, which is a Arab village just outside of Jerusalem, and there are conflict, conflicting claims about what happened. Um, the, the Israelis say that it was a uh, military skirmish by Arab forces. Arabs say it was a peaceful non-military village and the Zionists just came in and executed innocent civilians. In any case, whatever exactly happened, it could have been somewhat of both things, uh, whatever exactly happened there, it became a rallying cry. Um, it's the greatest fear of the Arab Muslims that the Jews will come in and exterminate us all, so we better do that first. Five days later, there's um, uh, an attack on a medical convoy and 78 Israelis are killed. And so this is the flashpoint of the so-called civil war there. Um, well, the civil war only stays internal for a very short period of time. Um, almost immediately, Israel is a brand new state, 1948, the Arab-Israeli war uh, initiates in which surrounding Arab nations and, 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 and broader Islamic nations, not, not every nation, of course, is, is Arab. Uh, the Persians and the Egyptians and the Turks are actually different ethnicities than Arabs, but um, they all descend on Israel, the Arab-Israeli war. And during this time, 750,000 Palestinians either flee because all of the Arab and, and Islamic nations are attacking Israel and it's just simply unsafe, or... Um, if you're Palestinian, you say something quite different. What you say is, they didn't just flee. This is their homeland. They were actually forced out. They make the claim that so many um, Palestinian villages were destroyed by Zionists. And this they call the Nakba. The Nakba, meaning the catastrophe. And the language that they use concerning the Nakba is very similar to the language. It actually just seems like they're co-opting the language that Jews use when they speak about the Shoah, the Holocaust. And so... Um, Palestinians to this day, <clears throat> uh, Hamas does this, they will portray the Nakba as a sort of Jewish Holocaust in which now the Jews play the role of the Nazis and the Palestinians are the ones who are uh, um, uh, against whom the genocide is being uh, done. So they're co-opting that language. It seems a little bit suspicious, but I don't make political judgments. I don't know about these things. Uh, I'm just telling you, this is where the thinking is on both the Israeli and the Palestinian side. And so this, this event, the Nakba, is, is very much central when Palestinians are saying that 
the Jews are occupiers, they are oppressors, um, they are killing our people. It's in large measure referring to this historical event. So it was a, it was a massive exodus of Palestinians from what would become Israel. Well, modern Israel <coughs> is then born. Um, 1964, the PLO is established. I'm sure you know about the PLO, Palest Palestine Liberation Organization. Yasser Arafat, the longtime leader of the PLO, a very, very famous name. Their intention was to destroy Israel. This isn't an interpretation, it's not an accusation. That was their claim. Um, their claim is, we, we intend to destroy Israel. There will be no Israel. There's no partition. There's no sharing the land. There is no dialogue. Um, uh, PLO, is, that's, that's not what they were founded for. To liberate um, and, and, uh, Palestine, and that is to drive out the Jews. 1967, very famous event, the Six-Day War happened in which, again, just like the Arab-Israeli War a couple decades before, the Arab and Islamic nations descend on Israel and tiny little Israel, it's considered a miracle in Israel, was able to defend itself in six days, not even a whole week. Six days, and not only did they defend the borders of Israel, but they expanded Israel. They took the whole Sinai Peninsula, which is a pretty barren area, but it's an enormous piece of land from Egypt. They took the Golan Heights and gave themselves a little bit of a buffer zone from Syria. They took the West Bank, giving themselves a buffer zone from Jordan. They took all of Jerusalem and the Gaza Strip. They did return the Gaza Strip and the West Bank to Palestinian Authority because um, the Jews were saying, we don't necessarily want to govern all the Arab Muslims, per se. Uh, we want them to have their own autonomy. We just want to have our own space. And so they were always for partition. And so uh, gave some concessions there, but of course that wasn't, that wasn't at all acceptable to the uh, Muslim nations around them. So in 1967, the Arab League was formed, that organization still exists today, and at their Arab League summit there, they issued three very famous no's. These are the three no's of the Arab League, and the three no's are just very clear emphatic statements. We will have no peace with Israel, we'll have no recognition of Israel, and there will be no negotiations with Israel. Okay? Very clear. Uh, and so, uh, birthed out of this, we get uh, the Yom Kippur War in 1973, which was, uh, Israel was not as successful as the, as the uh, Six-Day War. Uh, Israel was really caught off guard. I just found out that there's a movie about this. I saw half of it on the plane on the way here, Golda. It's a, I don't know if you've seen it. I, so I only saw half of it. I didn't watch the whole movie. I don't know how accurate it is. I really have no idea. Um, but it looked interesting to me because I want to know something more about it. And so it's about Golda Meir. She was the... Um, Prime Minister of Israel at the time, so maybe, maybe worth looking at, Yom Kippur War. Israel survived that. 1979, Israel returned the Sinai Peninsula to Egypt, and so Egypt and Israel went into a peace agreement at that time. This was kind of the first domino falling in which a majority Islamic nation actually made peace with Israel. And a lot of radical groups say Hamas is, is, doesn't exist yet, but they're going to say this was a major foible on the part of Egypt. We should not be doing this. And so, um, but it's actually really good news that Israel and Egypt would come to peace as they did. Um, 1982, Palestinians um, from, uh, from Lebanon up in the north fired rockets into um, Israel and um, this would lead into the, the 80s and early 90s, the first intifada, which are various riots. You've probably seen old videos of this in which they're um, young men throwing rocks and Israeli soldiers firing um, and shooting gas canisters at each other. This is an uprising. Um, in the 90s, we get a number of meetings, the Oslo Accords. Um, Israel and Jordan actually came to a peace agreement, which, is, um, which was a great uh, event in, in the 90s. But many of the 90s into the early 2000s, the so-called summits and meetings and all of those things were just by and large failures. So uh, the, the Y River Agreement, the Camp David Summit, uh, more or less failures. These involved the PLO, coming to the negotiating table with Israel under uh, Yasser Arafat's leadership. Yasser Arafat was a terrorist. Um, he was not interested in peace with Israel. He was very two-faced. Um, he would say one thing and Israel would give concessions and the PLO would betray. It's a shame that Yasser Arafat got a pre peace prize. It really is. Um, should have, should have never, never happened, but um, he was a terrorist. And so it, it went nowhere. There's no goodwill on his side. Um, he held to the three no's of the Arab League and so um, the second intifada gets us into the 21st century. Uh, and then we get to today. In 2005, Israel evacuated <coughs> all Jews, all Jewish communities within the Gaza Strip and all Jewish presence. 
Gaza Strip is very small. It's only about the size of Las Vegas. Um, you can imagine it's very densely populated. Well, right after the Jews left, Hamas came to power uh, in an election. There haven't been any, any elections since. And so they came to power and we get the, the first and second Gaza wars. Um, they happen very periodically. You can s sort of see the time frame. Um, they happen every, every now and then. And uh, 2020, we were under COVID, but something really important happened. The Abraham Accords, it's not very well known, but uh, the UAE, Israel, and Bahrain, these were Arab states, uh, came to a peace agreement. This is all sort of toppling all of the nose of the, um, of the Arab League. And so we, we see nations saying, especially Sunni nations saying, is Israel really our enemy? Uh, I think Iran, a Shiite nation, is our enemy, is our real enemy. And so because of tensions with the Shiite side of Islam, the Sunni side of Islam, because of those tensions, uh, some, some Sunni states have begun to uh, align with, with Israel. Or to, not align, but uh, to at least um, declare some official peace. Well, uh, today, of course, 2023, we, we, we are now in the midst of the Israel-Hamas war. So what happened with the Israel-Hamas war? Uh, this is current news, and, and you know something about it. October 7th, Hamas militants conducted um, a, really a murderous rampage in Israel. They killed and kidnapped hundreds of civilians, including children. I mean, just murdered in the most brutal ways. Uh, what was Israel's response? Uh, one of the first responses was to release the raw footage of the attacks to international press, uh, showing them the brutality of the attacks. Um, out of respect for the families, some of that uh, footage has been seen, some, some sort of catered pictures have been seen, but the true br brutality, according to journalists who saw these videos, and these are war correspondents who have seen and even experienced in some cases the ugly brutality of war, say this stuff um, it will keep you up at nights, what they saw. One journalist described um, a body cam on an, uh, a Hamas militant in which he was so ecstatic, so filled with joy, he was calling his parents covered in blood, saying, I've killed 10 Jews with my own hands. Uh, just brutal stuff, murdering children. Um, and so um, I have a student um, at Moody Bible Institute where I'm not an adjunct professor, I'm a full professor, just so. Just so I think. Uh, um, I'm a student, he's an Israeli. And this, this poor young man, he contacted me immediately after October 7th and he said, Dr. Merchant, I can't, I can't come to class. And I said, I, I fully understand. And, uh, and, I, and I saw him a few times, he walked through the halls like a ghost. He couldn't finish school, he left and uh, he's now in the IDF, the Israel Defense Force. I don't know what he's doing, um, but um, he felt the full pain of that October 7th attack. What did Israel do in response? Israel's response was swift and brutal. They dropped and are continuing to drop thousands of bombs, thousands and thousands of bombs on Gaza Strip, which again is only the size of about um, Las Vegas. The population of Gaza is very, very, uh, very, very large very, uh, and very, very young, very young. Thousands of people have died and, um, and, and the issue is that many, many children have died who are not Hamas militants. And so um, that's the situation as it is right now. So what's the immediate problem? And we're not a political group, we are a church. And so um, this is relevant to us, but um, we're not gonna take political sides and make political statements. We can as believers, we certainly can, but as a church, uh, we're going to stick to our business, and that is teaching the gospel. But what can we safely say? Um, I think we can safely say that Hamas is, is the immediate problem. Um, Hamas it, um, misrepresented their actual true aims in 2006. They, they um, portrayed themselves as a much more of a moderate group uh, than they actually are. And since 2006, they've banned elections. There's no dissent in Palestine. So you can critique Israel from inside Israel. It's... Um, you know, it's very much a democratic free society compared to Palestine, you may not. Um, try being a Palestinian Christian. Um, it's, it's a very um, difficult time for Palestinian Christians uh, and, and also, also Muslims. Um, the Hamas has neglected and persecuted their own people. Their main aim is not providing for the Palestinian people 
a livable life. It is destroying Israel, and that's their, that's their main aim. And so the, even their own people will be uh, caught in the crossfire of that. Surrounding Muslim nations have largely left Palestinian refugees in limbo in order to keep pressure on Israel. We're not going to help them. We're going to let the world know that Israel is um, the evil power here and look at all the evil that they're doing. Um, Hamas has placed military facilities inside and underneath hospitals. There's far more hospitals. Now, it's a very densely populated place, but there's far more hospitals than, than uh, an area that size should need. There, many of them are probably fake hospitals. And so what they want to do is they want the world to see Israel bombing hospitals, right? Um, and so this is very uh, intentional. They put military facilities in residential areas, and they're, they're, they're happy to allow their own people to be caught in the crossfire. Um, Hamas is a terrorist organization that's committed crimes against humanity. So when we say that, we, we are not, and I think that we can say that clearly. I don't feel any shame saying that uh, as a pastor. I, um, I think that's uh, what we ought to be saying. But let's not misunderstand. We are not denying the rights or the dignity of the Palestinian people by saying that. Okay? And so we have to emphasize uh, that. And we are not giving a blanket endorsement to all of Israel's policies. So Hamas has to be ended but that doesn't mean that Israel can do that in any way whatsoever. It's perfectly fair to be critical of how Israel is responding. Um, but again, th those would be political statements. I'm just saying we can do that. I'm not necessarily going to do either one of those things right now, but I just want to make that clear. Um, as the church, we don't make political statements and say the Palestinians are the bad guys and the Israelis are the good guys or vice versa. Um, that's, that's not for us to do. I was at... Um, the Evangelical Theological Society in San Antonio last week. And um, I went to a, a couple sessions on Islamic origins and I was in a room and that's not what I study, but I was just interested in it. I was in a room and I noted there was a number of uh, evangelical Egyptian, um, there were Nigerian and um, Arab uh, scholars, all Christian scholars. Um, of all those ethnicities, these are people embedded in the Islamic world. And I was drinking a coffee, and one Arab Christian scholar said, to, he walked up to me, I didn't know the guy, and he said, um, where's the nearest Starbucks? And I said, I don't know, I got this from the, from the convention center. I, I saw a McDonald's across the street, and he looked me straight in the eye, and he said, absolutely not, McDonald's supports Israel, and he walked away. Just down the hallway was the Messianic study track in which that was filled with Jewish Christians who would have had a very different attitude towards Israel and Palestine. They have the same theological commitments. They believe in the same Jesus, but he feels Palestinian pain in his soul, whereas my student, the Israeli student, feels Israeli pain. Um, and so we can say this, that both Israel and Palestine have deeply harmed one another with or without justification. They've deeply harmed and wounded one another, and both Israel and Palestine have a right to peace and security. Why is Hamas the immediate problem? Um, here's why Hamas is the immediate problem. It's rooted in Islamic theology. Here, here's the problem. Hamas is an expression of Islamic theology, and this is what Islam says. Islam, first of all, denies Israel's historical right to exist due to their supersessionist uh, or replacement theology. And this is the Islamic view. I mentioned this before. Muhammad supposedly taught, we're not sure that he taught this. The stuff that I learned in the Islamic study section actually blew my mind. Uh, it was really amazing stuff to me. But the historical claim is that there's the Old Testament from Abraham to Jesus. The New Testament is about Jesus. This was Muhammad's understanding. And it was all Islamic stuff. Now, again, people couldn't go check that. Muhammad just made these promises. Go ask the Jews and the Christians and you'll see that everything that I'm teaching you is, uh, is what they believe. Well, as Muslims began to do that, Jews and Christians said, no, absolutely not. We reject all of that. And from that time forward, Muhammad and, uh, and, and uh, the early Muslims became very anti-Jewish and very anti-Christian. And when we compare the Quran to the Old and New Testaments, we realize that there's a total inconsistency. The Old and New Testaments are not Islamic texts. So how do you explain that? Well, they needed an excuse. So early Islamic apologists developed a doctrine called tarif. And tarif is the idea that Jews and Christians have corrupted the text. It actually means corruption. So 
They make the claim that the Old and New Testaments are actually revealed by Allah. They're Islamic texts, but Jews and Christians have rewritten them to say other things. So they're now corrupted. Never mind the fact that the Quran says that all of Allah's revelations are incorruptible. So they're supposed to be Allah's revelations. They're supposed to be incorruptible, but they've been corrupted. Well, they needed an excuse for why Islam doesn't agree with the Old and New Testaments. And so they they said tarif. And so only the Quran is trustworthy, although supposedly it capitalizes on the prophetic tradition from the Old to the New Testaments. The apostles, they said in Ephesus, these are the men who turn the world upside down in their preaching. Here's an outlandish claim. The Roman Empire fell with the preaching of the apostles. It's a pretty outlandish claim. Not many historians would would agree to that claim, but I think it was the preaching of the apostles that marked the end of the Roman Empire. They conquered nations with their preaching. Their preaching was so powerful, of course, Muhammad and the early uh, Muslims wanted to stand on top of that authority. And this is a classic case of um, you know, having your cake and eating it too. We stand on that authority, but all of that authority has been corrupted because it, it disagrees with us. And so uh, that's the doctrine of Tarif. And so when Jews say, hey, we've lived here for centuries, this is our historical homeland, they say corruption, lies. Many Palestinians do not believe that the Jews uh, are historically from that area of the world, even though the archeological evidence is emphatically clear. And so they, they deny um, uh, Jews uh, the historical right to live there. It's very common in the Islamic world. In elementary education, this is education to, to children, there's very common uh, anti-Semitic propaganda is common. Uh, Jews and Christians are called apes and pigs on TV, uh, very common. We wouldn't see that, that sort of thing in the West at all. But anyway, uh, they also deny Israel's political right to exist. Why? Because Islam is an overtly political theology. And this is so foreign to us. Western thinking, we all breathe it. If you live in North America, if you live in Europe, uh, most of the world, in fact, uh, it's just in the air that we breathe. It's a weird mix of Christian and secular values. But neither Christianity nor secularism really have the categories to understand Islamic values. Islam is an emphatically political religion. That's what Sharia law is about. It's, it's, it's political. And so in the Islamic view of things, there are Islamic countries. There are Islamic cities. There's no separation of mosque and state. And so they see Jews coming into Jerusalem and saying, which they say is an Islamic city, saying, well, the Western half is ours. And we're, it would be like some foreign nation coming to the United States and splitting Washington, D.C. in half and saying, we're going to administer uh, our land from this half of Washington. No, that's an act of war. Absolutely not. That is the Islamic view uh, of what's going on. There, and so the idea of you know, uh, sharing this holy space or something like that is not even uh, entertained. Uh, this is what uh, uh, Sahih Muslim says. This is... Um, one of the hadiths, the so-called sayings of Muhammad that, that were, were um, um, collected after the Quran was finished, but this is supposedly a saying of, of Muhammad. I shall certainly expel the Jews and Christians from the Arabian Peninsula until I leave only Muslims there. Elsewhere in Sahih Muslim, it says, the hour will not begin until the Muslim fights the Jews and the Muslims will kill them until a Jew hides behind a rock or a tree and the rock or the tree will say, O Muslim, O slave of Allah, there is a Jew behind me. Come and kill him. Hamas cited that saying of Muhammad in the Hamas covenant of the Islamic resistance movement. In their, um, in their founding document, they cited that um, tree, rocks and trees will say to Muslims, there's a Jew hiding behind me. Come here and kill him. And so the Hamas covenant says, uh, this is a direct quote, Israel will exist and will continue to exist until Islam will obliterate it. It also says the day the enemies usurp part of Muslim land, that is Israel, Jerusalem, jihad, military response, uh, fighting, becomes the individual duty of every Muslim. So uh, Hamas is, is explicitly political, and it would be the same attitude again that we would have if an invading country would come and take Washington, D.C., and take the eastern seaboard and say, this is our place now, uh, what would happen? U.S. armies would go fight. We don't see Christianity that way. Why don't we see Christianity that way? Jesus and the apostles taught a separation of church and state. We don't see the church and the state as being, it's, it's always corrupting to the church when the church and the state come together. Jesus said, render unto Caesar what are Caesar's and render unto God what is God's. He said to Pilate, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my disciples would take up swords. 
we would have an army, we would have police. That's what, that's what nations have. We are not an earthly nation, we're a heavenly nation. That's why Paul says in Philippians, where they, in Philippi, they really value the Roman citizenship. He says, your ultimate citizenship is in heaven. We look to a heavenly Jerusalem coming down. About 500 years later, Rome would eventually fall and there would be no more Western Roman Empire anymore and the great uh, theologian Augustine had to write a book about it called The City of God in which he teaches that Christians do not belong to an earthly nation but to a heavenly nation, okay? That's the teaching of the New Testament. It's vitally different, fundamentally different than the Islamic view. Um, and so that's why we largely don't understand it. When we have Western students in colleges, I'm sure it's happening at University of Washington, you know, right now, it's happening all across the country. You got Western students uh, flying Palestinian flags and saying, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. It also rhymes in Arabic, interestingly. From the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. That's the sort of rallying call. That is a statement of eradicating the Jews. I think most people saying that have no idea uh, what they're saying. And so, um, that, that comes from, from uh, Islamic values, and so that's what Hamas is, is pushing. So, what should we say as biblical Christians? I'm actually going to do this a little bit. We've said a lot already. I'm going to do this, uh, you know, a little bit rapidly, but uh, what should we say as biblical Christians? Um, the descendants of Israel, the Bible says, are God's chosen people. The Jews are God's chosen people. Psalm 105, 7 through 11 now, it's important. What do we mean by chosen? We'll say something about that. But uh, Psalm 105, this is what the psalmist says. He says, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant that he made with Abraham. His sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute. To Israel as an everlasting covenant saying, to you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. And that's why Paul says in Romans 11, 25 through 32, this is what Paul says. He's writing to Romans, a largely Gentile church, a largely non-Jewish church, but many Jewish believers there. He says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So the Jews are partially hardened, interesting terminology, until the Gentiles come into the church, that is non-Jews come into the church. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And he goes on, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. So the Jews have rejected the gospel. They rejected the ministry of Jesus. They rejected the preaching of the apostles. So um, as regards the gospel, they have made themselves enemies. They have not um, accepted that Jesus is the Messiah and King of Israel. But as regards election, that is God's choosing, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gift and the calling of God are irrevocable. God doesn't make promises and then take them back because we fail. Isn't that really good news? God made a promise to me, I will save you. I loved you and I sent my son for you. You know how many times I've failed? The covenant that God made with me is not dependent on me, thank God. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have been disobedient in order that by mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. This is a very strange claim. Paul calls it a mystery. God has allowed a time of disobedience among the Jews to whom Jesus was sent to be the Messiah so that we Gentiles might be included in the promises that he made. But the promises are never usurped. The promises are never taken away and given to someone else. Are we gonna say God is a liar? Read 2 Samuel 7. What did he tell David? Is God a liar? Did God not really mean what he said? Well, the early church wasn't sure because after the Bar Kokhba rebellion, Israel ceased to exist. So what do those promises even mean? So from the medieval period up until the Reformation, there's a lot of allegorical interpretations of this because what could God have meant? There's, how could God's promises to Israel be eternal? There's no Israel. It has to mean something else until 1948. Apparently God keeps his promises. Well, there are two wrong responses, I think, to what uh, Paul says in Romans 11. Two wrong responses that... Um, uh, 
um, that, that Israel was partially hardened so that the Gentiles might come in. Um, one response might be anti-Gentilism. <clears throat> if you speak to say, certain very hardened Orthodox Jews in Israel and, and you just ask them, and I've seen these interviews, um, are the Jews better than the Gentiles? They will say, well, I'm, I'm no racist, but absolutely. It's not me saying, it's God saying. We are the chosen people, they are not. So yes, we are better. They make no qualms about saying it that way. Um, no, that's anti-gentilism, that's not the gospel. Uh, read the New Testament, that is not what the apostles are teaching. There is no value hierarchy between any peoples, Jews and Gentiles, Israelis are not greater than Palestinians, there's no value hierarchy. The gospel is first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. That's simply in God's ordering. That's simply in God's timing. That's simply in God's plan. That's not a value hierarchy. And so it's a misunderstanding. We know it's a misunderstanding. Read Acts chapter 10. God teaches Peter this exact message. Peter thought that it was inappropriate to preach the gospel to Gentiles. If you want to hear the gospel, get circumcised first, obey the Mosaic law, become a Jew, and then you can hear the gospel. But the gospel is not for you. It's for the children of Israel. God showed him that that's not true. And so uh, Acts chapter 10, all of humanity is dignified in Jesus Christ. The opposite extreme would be anti-Semitism, which we know anti-Semitism, the uh, persecution and hatred of Jews, which has had terrible consequences, way worse consequences than anti-Gentilism, the, the Holocaust, for example. Um, some people have interpreted this partial hardening as meaning that God has rejected the Jews. Not true. Um, there's no rejection of the Jews. But in Christian history, sometimes it's unfortunately been thought of that way. In the patristic era, for example, John Chrysostom, a, a very famous preacher, uh, preached against the Jews. He was wrong. In the medieval period, the Crusades were very violent. They were brutally violent uh, against the Muslims. They are also uh, violent against Jews to a lesser degree, and even violent against Eastern Greek-speaking Christians. So the, the Crusades were um, really um, wrong on so many levels, but, uh, but their anti-Semitism was wrong. And even the reformer Martin Luther had some preaching against, he was a great theologian, he had some preaching against the Jews. He was wrong. This is a misunderstanding. Um, they mistakenly endorsed replacement theology and they mistakenly ignored the separation of church and state. Well, uh, we should reject replacement theology, we should accept that God's promises to Israel are his promises, uh, even if it's unbelievable to us. And we should endorse the separation of church and state. We should not allow the church to be corrupted by stately authority. Um, Anti-Semitism is a ploy of Satan. Satan has wanted to eradicate the Jewish people because God has made promises to the Jewish people that he intends to keep. And so, um, thankfully, the church, um, is no longer the center of anti-Semitism. That was a huge mistake, but it's shifted largely to the secular world and we're seeing this more and more. Uh, anti-Semitism is alive and well. So uh, let's end with this. I, I know I've said a lot. Um, let's just get to a couple points. Contrary to Judaism, no one is in right standing with God by ethnic origin or by keeping the Mosaic law. Again, that's what the apostles tell us. That's not how we come to be in right standing with God. And contrary to Islam, no one is in right standing with, with God by keeping Sharia law. According to the gospel, all people can be equal and in right standing before God by his graciousness alone. Ephesians 2, 4 through 8 say that we were dead in trespasses and sins, but by grace we have been saved through faith, not of our own doing. In other words, not by following the law, but as a gift of God. So God initiates this is, this is how God saves the world. He initiates. We don't have any goodwill in us. He initiates and he loves us first. And when he loves us, then we're changed. So when we're loved by him, then we love him in response because we're filled with his love with which to love him and then we know him. And because we're loved and because we're saved by his graciousness, then we are obedient. Both Judaism, contemporary Judaism and Islam see it the other way. First you're obedient and then you're accepted by God. No, we are accepted by God because of his graciousness, and then we are obedient in response. First John 4, 9 through 10 said, we did not love first, but God loved us. He loved us first and sent his son to pay for our sins. First John 5, 1 through 11 says, when we love God, after he loves us, then we love God, we obey his commandments, and we overcome the world by faith, not by jihad. So God first loves us, that changes us, in response, we are obedient, and then our obedience does what? It changes the world. Humanity is reconciled to Jesus Christ, and I know I've gone very long, but this is important. So Ephesians 2 is gonna be our central passage. We're gonna end with this. Ephesians 2, 11 through 21. This is um, the only thing I think that um, I, I wanna say about Israel-Hamas war. This is what Paul says. 
Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were Uh, who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. There's a dividing wall of hostility along the Gaza Strip. Jesus Christ has broken it down by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man, one new humanity in place of the two so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were once far off and peace to um, those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and, uh, with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone and whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So, uh, <clears throat> Often the conversation in the car when you go home, somebody will say uh, to someone else in the car, what do you think of the sermon? This is one response you can give. You can say, it was a disappointment. It was a disappointment because this is a serious political issue. And you know what he said the answer was? He said the answer was Jesus. Really? Evangelists always do that. They take any crisis, even genocide, and they inject Jesus into it. Aren't they such opportunists? That's what we do. Um, I don't know what the right political decisions are. I'm sure there are political geniuses who have figured this out. Um, I'm sure it's been debated and it's been rejected. Um, There are good political decisions. I don't know what they are. I'm not in a position to tell you. And even if I were, I don't think this would be the appropriate place to do it. That's not what we're here for. But whatever the right political move is, I am emphatically sure that the answer is Jesus. And I don't mean that in a mythical way. I don't mean that... um, um, yeah, I, I got to be done here. <laughs> I have to come to an end. But I mean that quite seriously. And I know that that's outlandish. I know that's laughable to the world. Jesus says that in the world you will have tri- tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I actually believe that that's true. I believe that that's historically true. I believe that that's true now. Jesus has actually overcome the world. He's not, he didn't say I'm overcoming the world. He has overcome the world. So this is what I have to say to people who are taught by the Holy Spirit. The world can't understand this. Uh, I get that. This is what I say to people who are taught by the Holy Spirit. Is this the end of the world? Who knows? Probably not. Um, It seems to be another iteration of something that's been happening. But the end of the world will come. And I'm pretty sure that the end of the world will happen when the nations descend on Israel to destroy it. I think that's what the Bible teaches. Um, This is a precursor to that, perhaps. Whether it is or is not the end of the world, Jesus said, take heart, I have overcome the world. So this is what we can know about Israel and, and Palestine. Justice is coming and justice is in fact guaranteed in Jesus Christ. Reconciliation is coming. Reconciliation will happen. It's guaranteed. Palestinians and Jews will be reconciled. Jesus will assure that. Peace is guaranteed. It's going to happen. This isn't to wave our hands at it and say, oh, never mind. Just, you know, let the world go to hell. We care about it. We're concerned. We do peacemaking and reconciliation. We provide help and assistance. Christians are there now in Gaza doing these things, but let's take heart. These things are guaranteed in Jesus Christ. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess. I'm sure, I know that that is the truth. And so even if it were the end of the world, it need not cause us great fear. And not to say that we celebrate these these things either, but we trust God in all of these things. All right, let's pray.